you will please turn in your copies of the scriptures to Psalm 12. Uh, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you if you need to use those. It's on page 452, Psalm 12. And we are finishing up today our sermon series this summer on the first 12 Psalms. Next week, we begin a new series in Philippians. And I'll announce this just one more time. We have these wonderful scripture journals uh, on Philippians that are out here available in the narthex. We'd love for you to pick one of those up, dive into Philippians for yourself, use this during the sermon time to take notes. I think you'll find these a real blessing. Psalm 12. This is God's holy, inerrant, and authoritative word to us this morning. May he add his blessings to it. To the choir master, according to the Shemineth, Psalm of David. Save, O Yahweh, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May Yahweh cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says Yahweh. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of Yahweh are pure, like silver, refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Yahweh, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl. As vileness is exalted among the children of man. Let's pray. Father, we know that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word, O Lord, abides forever. It is true. It is pure. It's pure as refined silver. So, Father, would you lay these truths upon our hearts this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was first introduced to Reformed theology, when I was in college under the ministry that uh, Matt is involved with, I immediately began to notice that many of the serious-minded Christians that I was around, they really liked acrostics. They kind of had an acrostic for everything. You know, for instance, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Or another semi-acrostic justification, just as if I'd never sinned. But then I discovered that many of the Christians I were hanging around, they really liked tulips. They were always talking about tulips. I could not understand why these people felt like they needed to bring up a flower at a Bible study. But I soon discovered that tulip was yet again another beloved acrostic. <laughs> if you've never heard tulip, <laughs> tulip is an acrostic. It was developed to frame the five points of Calvinism. And if that's new to you, and this is the first time you've ever heard that, we have lots of literature that we would love to share with you uh, where you can read up on Calvinism and TULIP. The TULIP is an acrostic. T stands for total depravity. 
U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance of the saints. So essentially, the five points of Calvinism, summarized by Tulip, they are from the reformer, Protestant theologian John Calvin, one of the fathers of the Reformation. He formulated the doctrines of Tulip that were articulated at the Synod of Dort in Holland in the 1600s as an answer to another system of doctrine being taught called Arminianism. Arminianism was developed by, yet again, another Dutch theologian, Jacobus Arminius. He was teaching that, hey, salvation is the work of man alone. We need to choose. We need to work. We need to act. Calvin came along and said, no, 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 that's not the proper biblical understanding. We need to understand that salvation is a work of the Lord. Man is not the primary agent in salvation. Yahweh God is. And so Calvin taught this passionately, that it's the sovereignty of God that is the most key, most important thing we must understand. He is the one sovereign over salvation. And so each of the doctrines of Calvinism are profoundly important as we understand the doctrines of grace. So we don't run away from these doctrines. We don't shy away from them, and we're not hesitant to talk about them. We actually run to them. And Psalm 12 this morning is going to show us why. Why do I bring this up? What does Tulip have to do with Psalm 12? It's because three of these great doctrines from Tulip are found in Psalm 12, and we're going to study them this morning as we understand what God is up to in the salvation of his people, in the grand storyline of redemptive history. So although there are five doctrines that summarize Calvinism, what we call Tulip, we're just going to focus on three of them this morning, three that are found in Psalm 12. Each of the First 12 psalms that we've looked at week after week, starting back in May, we have uh, studied uh, that each psalm has kind of a main idea, a, a driving point, a thrust that we're to look at. And there's a takeaway for us in each of these psalms. What we're to know about God and what we're to know about the Christian life, how we live the Christian life in a fallen world. And so Psalm 12 has a theme for us. Here it is. Although we live in a fallen and sinful world, Yahweh God's sovereign protection is over his faithful chosen ones. That's the thrust of Psalm 12. Although we live in a fallen and sinful world, Yahweh God's sovereign protection is over his faithful chosen ones. So let's first look at the first four verses, the doctrine of total depravity. That's the first petal of the tulip here, total depravity. This doctrine teaches that we live in a fallen, sinful world. After Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, the world is corrupted. And so has everyone who has lived and ever will live. We are all corrupted in our nature. We are sinful. And because of this, mankind, all people who have ever lived and will live, are in bondage to sin. Everything about us is sinful. Nothing has been left untouched by the fall. And therefore, mankind is unable to exercise our free will to trust in Christ. 
We need something to move in us. We need the Holy Spirit of God to come in and regenerate and change our hearts, renew our wills, and help us to live a new life in Christ. We need the work of God, His amazing grace to do this. Psalm 12 begins to give us some evidence here of what total depravity looks like. We certainly see the evidence in our world, moral corruption and wickedness is all around us. It's undeniable. We live in a fallen, sinful world full of morally depraved individuals. And King David felt this tension too. And that's what's being described here in the first four verses of Psalm 12 as he bemoans that, Lord, I look around and there's There's no faithful ones left. There's no one who appears to be godly around us. Everyone has lying and deceitful tongues. There's sin and wickedness and total depravity. The moral corruption of David's day was described keenly here by the speech of the wicked. Look how he goes into this mantra about the wickedness that he sees. They lie, they flatter, they speak with a double heart. They, they boast of their slithering, snake-like speech. Those around David not only lie and speak falsely about each other, but they're proud of it. They're going around boasting, look how I deceived with my eloquent tongue. This is not so different from the world that we live in, is it? Our society today is pervasive with lying, so much so that it really doesn't mean anything to call anyone a liar anymore. It's almost lost its, its meaning. Think about this, for instance, in the political arena. Both liberals and conservatives arguing and fighting against each other, accusing each other of lying about different talking points. It's so over the top, it's hard to even discern what the truth is. But this is not just in the political arena. Think about in the church today. May we all be deeply saddened and lament the lying and abuse that is taking place in the church today as we grieve the misuse of church authority and the mistreatment of women by men in power. May God have mercy on us for the lying and deceit found in our churches. But more importantly, we must not see total depravity as something that's out there, that's touching everyone else. We need to first and foremost look at our own hearts and see the moral and total depravity that is right here, that we are fallen creatures that you and I are unable to save ourselves, we're unable to rescue ourselves from our lying and our deceit, we too need a Savior. We need help. So the takeaway from these first four verses of Psalm 12 is that total depravity, it's a proven doctrine. Moral corruption exists and is rampant in our world. And it's rampant in our own hearts. It should leave us crying out to God as this psalm begins. Look there in verse 1. You can hear it now, can't you? Save, 
O Yahweh. Save us. Help us. Look at where we are. We need help because of total depravity. The second doctrine I want us to look at here is unconditional election. That's found in verses 5 through 6. As David looks around and he bemoans the wickedness and ungodliness that is all around him, he longs for a message of hope. He's he's longing for some good news. And in verse 5, he gets some. Here's the good news. It turns out that there are some faithful ones who remain. There are those who have not bowed a knee to idols in his society. There are believers who seek to honor God with their lips and strive to turn away from the moral corruption and the depravity of this world. These faithful ones are described here in verse 5 as the poor and needy. Not just the physically poor and needy, but those who Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit is to cry out to God and say, I need you. I need you. I feel the depravity in the world around me, and I feel the depravity most of all in my own life and in my own heart. And, oh, Yahweh, save me. And to this, God promises that he will arise. Look at that wonderful promise in verse 5. God promises he will arise, he will act, he will save and provide safety for those who belong to him. And this is the wonderful doctrine of unconditional election. This doctrine teaches us that our sovereign creator, the sovereign Lord of the universe, he would choose to save, he would choose to place his love and affection on those whom he loves, those that belong to him not because of what they have done, but because of his sovereign love and his goodwill toward those who are his, those who are poor and needy, those who long for safety from their God. What good news this is, guys. What great news this is. God's love toward depraved sinners is unconditional. Once God Almighty has set his love and his affection on those who belong to him before the foundation of the world, that love can never change. It will never go away. It is always there forever. This is good news. Can I get a Presbyterian amen? These words of Yahweh are awesome assurance to us, wonderful assurance to us who desperately need his grace. These words are the assurance of God's unconditional love that belong to him, the assurance that they are loved, that he will act, that he will move on their behalf, that indeed there is safety in the shadow of his wings. This is what we also call God's predestinating love. It's the best love. It's the love that has been described as the love you've always wanted. It's the love that you did not earn. It's the love that you don't deserve. But it's the love that will not let you go. Ever. It's unconditional. 
God's love is unconditional and true. Why? Because of verse 6. What a strange verse. God is trying to prove and show Himself that His love is true because His Word is unconditionally true. That's what verse 6 means. It's like pure silver, refined on, in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds very involved, very intense, and very pure. That's how awesome God's love is. We can be 110% confident of God's unconditional love because His Word is true. It is as sure and as pure as the most refined pure silver you could imagine purified seven times completely pure john calvin says this in thinking about god's unconditional love and his sure word when doubt begins to steal upon us we must lift up this shield that the words of the lord are pure and sure God's word is true, and he will arise, he says, and place those who belong to him in safety. And this is because of his unconditional love toward us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's good news. But last, the third great doctrine we come to, we're going to skip all the way down to the, to the fifth petal of the tulip. That's perseverance of the saints. And that's what we find in verses 7 through 8. Though the world we live in has fallen, though our hearts are depraved, God has set his love upon the poor and needy, and he will keep them. He will guard them forever. And this, again, is that wonderful doctrine called the perseverance of, of the saints. It's a wonderful doctrine of grace. It teaches us that since salvation is the work of the Lord God Almighty, His work alone, all those who are chosen by God, those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, those who have been given faith by the Spirit of God dwelling in us, they are eternally saved. They are kept in the faith by the power of God and thus persevere to the end. This is good news. This is the good confession that David makes in verse 7. Look at that. He says, you, O Yahweh, you will keep them. You will guard us. Although there's wickedness and vileness all around the world that David lives in, the world that we live in, Yahweh will Keep, think of this language, keep, he will guard, he will, he will protect those who belong to him. What a wonderful truth. What an amazing promise that it's the Lord who does it. He is the one who will allow us to persevere. This is that wonderful truth that Taylor read from in Psalm 121 earlier. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. He 
will help us to persevere. The world that we find ourselves living in is a paradox of sorts. There's the evil around us, the evil in us. But there's the great promise that Yahweh God will keep us. He will help us to persevere. He will guard us. And this is the wonderful assurance that we need every day to live, to persevere, knowing that Christ will keep us until he returns. But what about you? What if this morning you feel that God, you don't feel God guarding you and keeping you? You feel dry, you feel lonely. It doesn't feel like God's protection is over you and over his church and over his saints. What do we do? How do we combat this feeling of being alone and distant from God? Again, John Calvin helps us here. He says, if the guardianship of God is at times hidden, let us wait in patience until he arises. And however great our adversity Let us maintain godly fear and prayerfulness. So that is what we must do. We must seek the Lord and wait for God with patience, knowing that he will act in his good timing. I love these words of this song, this hymn composed by Martin Luther. He wrote it based on Psalm 130. Here's one of the lines. We've sang it here many times before. Though great our sins and sore our woes, his grace much more aboundeth. His helping love, it knows no limit. Our utmost need, it soundeth. Our shepherd good and true is he who will at last his Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. And so however, the, however corrupt the world feels, however corrupt you feel and the world seems, however corrupt everything feels at times, we need to know this truth. This truth that is as sure as silver purified seven times. God will save those who are his. He is a refuge to his faithful ones. Calvin one more time. He says, let us learn, therefore, from David's example here in Psalm 12 to find our refuge in God when we see around us nothing but black despair. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And that's what the table in front of us means. That's what the celebration of the Lord's Supper means. It is the assurance that we long for. It is the the promise that God is faithful, that he is our refuge, that by his one and only son, he has promised, he has covenanted that he will keep us, that he will guard us, that he will watch over us, that he will save us from our sin. And so may God prepare our hearts to receive this grace. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we just went on a tour of your 
amazing and wonderful love to us. And Father, we know it. We know the world has fallen. We know, Lord, our hearts are sinful. But Father, we also know that you love us. That those who are in Christ Jesus have no fear of sin and death. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we praise you and thank you for your unconditional love toward us who are poor and who are needy. Father, please give us the confidence, give us the the assurance to persevere to the end, Lord, knowing that it is you who will do it. It is you who will guard and keep us. It is you, O Lord, who have promised because of your Son, our Lord Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen.